just by way of introduction, um, my name is Mike Wardle. Um, I'm the Chief Executive at CN, and I'll be chairing the session today. Um, so my job is to uh, keep us to time uh, and keep us move, moving on. Um, I should say a brief word of thanks to um, our sponsors. Um, we have a range of sponsors for the FS Club um, who allow us to range uh, freely and widely uh, across the fields of economics, finance and innovation. Um, and just a thank you to them for enabling uh, the work that we do. Um, in terms of the agenda today, um, we have um, my brief introduction. Uh, we'll have an introduction to the session um, from Keiichi Otomo from uh, Tokyo. Um, he'll be talking just about um, a, an overview um, of how this uh, subject fits um, between you know, the trade in art uh, and the role of financial centers. Uh, presentations on market opportunities from Dennis Layton and Adriano. Um, and then uh, a panel discussion about what the financial center response might be uh, to that market opportunity uh, created uh, in the art world. We'll have time for uh, Q&A uh, towards the end of the session. Um, and at any point in the session, if you have a question or a comment uh, on the subject, please use the chat function and just um, send a chat message to everyone. Um, and we'll pick those up uh, towards the end of the session. All people will uh, respond to you, no doubt. Uh, in the chat. Let's make it as interactive as we can. Um, so just by way of um, introduction, I've mentioned already our speakers are very much looking forward to them and some really quite deep thinkers um, about the uh, art market and different ways in which uh, the market uh, might, might develop um, and with some uh, challenging ideas, I hope, um, on the role of finance and financial centres uh, in leading the... Okay. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Keiichi Aritomo. Um, I'm representing Tokyo Financial Center as the uh, executive director of uh, Finstead.Tokyo, which is the uh, uh, quasi-governmental uh, agency, uh, also uh, uh, supported by uh, largely financial institutions as well as Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Uh, at the same time, I'm also representing uh, World Alliance of International Financial Centers as a chairman. Uh, let me touch upon World Alliance of Inter International Centers. Many of those uh, financial centers are also the uh, sponsors for ZN as well. And we uh, get together uh, two or three times a year uh, to discuss uh, common challenges and also like uh, uh, trying to establish some uh, you know, guiding principles uh, for, uh, to level playing field as well. So as you may be aware, some of those, uh, many of those financial centers are also art centers. So uh, uh, for the uh, y YFC, we call it, uh, World Alliance of, Alliance of Financial Centers, we have a few uh, projects, joint projects among those financial centers. Uh, one of the uh, projects is uh, art and financial center. Um, so the situation is that um, um, lots of wealthy people tend to like artworks, uh, both uh, visual art and performing art. And at the same time, uh, uh, artists typically live in financial centers. Um, and business community and financial communities are oftentimes inspired by artists and art. Uh, complication is, uh, although uh, artists and the financial professionals are living next to each other in financial centers, they don't necessarily communicate each other. They don't interact. Their interactions are quite limited or transactional. And uh, especially during the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, imagine artists have uh, financially struggled a lot. Uh, and uh, um, but on the other hand, um, you know, uh, artist neighborhood tends to attract uh, wealthy. Uh, residents. And as a result, uh, financial centers are very difficult for artists to uh, live. That's a gentrification issues. So uh, the common questions we are trying to address by, among, uh, by uh, financial centers is how to embrace and foster artists in financial ecosystem without exploiting those uh, uh, art professionals and how to make financial centers affordable and livable 
or artists. And as you may be aware, must be aware, this world is getting uh, increasingly more polarized, uh, disjointed. But uh, uh, art might be the only way to get things uh, integrated again and harmonized. So how can we achieve that? So this is the kind of uh, overview and uh, the problem statement. So here's a, a conceptual diagram. Uh, as you can see, you have on the left-hand side, investors and finance community and artists and art. So there are lots of interactions. Um, we may not be aware of those interactions. Um, investors are sponsoring artists and uh, artists are producing uh, artworks or performing and uh, they receive uh, sales proceeds uh, in exchange of their performance and also uh, products. Um, also investors invest into artworks uh, for uh, return or reputation um, or enjoyment, right? Um, and then uh, artist community oftentimes get inspired by artists, uh, sorry, investors and business community oftentimes uh, inspired by artists, right? So uh, we have to, uh, those are domains or those are different players or, uh, 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 you know, more uh, interactive uh, as well, right? And, um, and the relationship, correlation between art and financial centers. So here's one example. Uh, on the uh, vertical dimension, we listed a uh, number of millionaires. Uh, rank, ranked by number of millionaires. And the uh, uh, vertical dimension is our city ranking. So um, there are some overlaps, right? And um, um, you might argue that those are correlated or not. Uh, next page shows the, uh, again, on the left-hand side, uh, here's a number of uh, uh, millionaires as well as billionaires. Uh, Tokyo is uh, uh, a bit interesting. Tokyo has uh, quite a few millionaires, more than 300,000 uh, millionaires. But uh, uh, although Tokyo is so gigantic, we only have 12 billionaires. And uh, uh, nowadays, people often see uh, Jack Ma. So Jack Ma is not a Tokyo resident, but he's uh, spending a lot of time in Japan. But uh, this is not counted here. So uh, here's a millionaire uh, population. And uh, on the right-hand side, uh, there are countries dominating art contemporary art market as well. So US, China, and the UK are quite uh, significant as a, a contemporary art market as well. So there might be some uh, correlation, but um, um, uh, but it's, it may not be that simple, right? Uh, because some of the cities cannot monetize uh, or capitalize uh, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, the art as well. Um, one thing I can like uh, uh, credibly talk about is my own experience. Um, you know, uh, one, one example is about the uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange. Um, Tokyo Stock Exchange and it, its uh, neighborhood used to be quite vibrant until late 1990s. And since the uh, um, you know financial bubble burst and also electrification of trading floor uh, and order management systems. Uh, there's no necessity for people to trade here at the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Uh, by the way, my office is right next to Tokyo Stock Exchange. Um, as a result, many brokerage firms left this neighborhood, and uh, uh, this neighborhood became really dull and empty and rusty and sleepy until uh, four or five years ago. So um, in order to revitalize this neighborhood, um, I propose uh, uh, um, Tokyo Stock Exchange and also Landlord to uh, initiate um, show, uh, jazz uh, uh, events at Tokyo Stock Exchange by the name of Jazz Emerging Management Musician Program to showcase the uh, young and talented jazz musicians as well as the uh, uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange's training floor. And uh, this event was sponsored by local financial funds and endorsed by Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Um, and since then, uh, not, not only because of this, this uh, neighborhood became much more vibrant. And there are quite a few uh, side events taking place, uh, featuring, featuring uh, emerging yet to be famous jazz musicians as well. 
So I, I'm personally very passionate about jazz because uh, I'm a part-time jazz musician. So, uh, but uh, uh, we can do the same for other genre of uh, art as well. So as a result, uh, this neighborhood became much more lively and diversified. And, uh, and, and, and this uh, Tokyo Stock Exchange uh, uh, and this neighborhood became a, a popular uh, tourist destination as well. So this is one case example I wanted to share with you. So this is the uh, 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 end of my presentation. But the uh, uh, goal is to integrate art and artists and uh, uh, people in finance. So that's the uh, uh, ideal uh, status of uh, financial centers. Okay, thank you very much. Back to you, Mike. Well, thank you very much, Keiji, for that, that overview. And uh, you know, I'm sure we'll all be coming to the Tokyo Stock Exchange for, for jazz uh, whenever we have the opportunity. Um, so now we're going to move on to talk about the uh, developments in the art market and the market opportunities that exist. And I'd like to invite Dennis Layson, first of all, um, to give us his thoughts on uh, the current, current developments in the art market. Thank you very much, Keiichi San. Thank you very much uh, for uh, hosting us today. And thank you, uh, Mike, for, for having me. I think that um, if we go back to the graphic uh, that Keiichi San used on the ecosystem, I think one thing I would point out on that is that we are missing the art institutions who would act as the convening space for art. And I want to talk about two axes that I think is so important in the development of this market. The first is about ownership and return. And we have lots of organizations, Masterworks, Artex has just launched, um, there's all kinds of fractional exchanges that that focus on ownership um, with an uncertain economic model where people pay a lot of fees up front. So that's one access is ownership. The other access I want to talk about that brings the benefits that Keiichi San has talked about of this cross fertilization, this Medici effect is around access and enjoyment. And the problem when you buy something through Masterworks or Artex or any of these platforms is you can own shares, but it's in a warehouse somewhere. And so what we have to do is find a way to bolster both axes through supporting art institutions that make that art both available and have an economic model around that that works. And if we can do that, then what we can do is we can plug the gap between the clear consumer demand for shares in art, in the ownership of art, and the clear demand to access and participate in art. 40 million people a year go to museums. And so I think that if we're going to really think about how do we move this along, how do we address the market failure we find today where people can buy shares in some pieces, but not that many. And when they do, they don't really have access to the art and it doesn't support the art institutions that play a critical role in this ecosystem. And so I think that's the really interesting point that we have to talk about is what is the role of finance in supporting the art institutions that then make this art available? Because the problem isn't with low value art today. Low value art people can buy and put on their walls for a couple hundred dollars. The problem is in very high value art, either the contemporary artists that uh, aren't really in museums today or the old master masterpieces that are either in museums where the museum's economic model is broken or they're in the Geneva Freeport or something. So I would actually encourage us to be thinking about those two axes of ownership and return and 
access and support for the institutions that make it possible for this Medici effect to take to happen. And with that, should I hand over to Adriano and then we can have a conversation about that a little bit? Absolutely. So Adriano, I think you have some slides as well to share. Yep, hi everyone. And thank you again for having me to this uh, event. Let me bring my presentation. So I'll try to be short, uh, but also to set a little bit the scene and to complement uh, the previous discussions. So we on the Deloitte side, so we define the art and finance as a, as an interconnected uh, sector where you connect finance, the visual art sector and the cultural sector to come back to Dennis point. So we include cultural sector in our art and, and finance definition. And of course, if we look at the visual art sector and the cultural sector that create also everything that we will be whether we will talk about cultural districts, uh, uh, creative industries, uh, so that's part of, of the landscape. Uh, when we uh, look at art and finance, and I think what is very interesting nowadays is that this topic is kind of uh, taking it a little bit by little bit, step by step, so more more interest. And I'm very very supportive of these initiatives of the of uh, this association, the work, the um, stock exchange associations and the financial center associations, because we have been on the Deloitte side covering this subject for more than 15 years. And what I think is very unique is that we have a, a unique a unique time in in art history, if I may call it like that, where we have a, a certain numbers of macro trends. Uh, creating and transforming and, and bringing to life this art and finance ecosystem. Uh, I will not go into all the details of that. So, but what I think it's important is to keep in mind that we are living in a time where we have a certain numbers of, of macro trends that we have never seen in the past that are creating this kind of new dynamic. So the momentum and the timing is, is, is very good to, uh, to engage on this topic of art and finance. Um, now, just if I would like to focus a little bit on opportunities for, I would say, financial sector, and in particular to the wealth management sector, we have estimated in our 2021 art and finance report that there's around 1.5 trillions of US dollar that is allocated to art and collectible. I'm really precise on art and collectible, not only art. Uh, so that is allocated to uh, art and collectible by ultra high net worth individuals. And of course, it's a it's a lot of uh, a lot of wealth, and there are different motivations uh, behind. So these uh, acquisitions, uh, emotion, social, ego, status, investment, or maybe a combination of all of that. But what is interesting is that usually, so this wealth is not included into uh, wealth management services, uh, and of course, so. Uh, when we talk about art and collectible wealth, so it's a little bit comparable to what we can see in terms of a private market illiquid investment. And uh, that's, of course, not up to date uh, results. Uh, but let me, uh, Dennis, use some of your McKinsey analysis or uh, data. So from uh, I think it was 2021, or if I remember well, yeah, 2021. So where alternative uh, or private market were estimated to be 7.3 trillion, of course, today it's higher. But at the time, so that was fine. If we would be able to include the 1.5 trillions of wealth allocated to art and collectible in the private uh, market that will increase uh, the size of the assets and the management by 20%. So it's substantial, meaning that there's definitely an opportunity for wealth managers uh, to also include art and collectible into their service offering. Uh, also, when we look at collectors, uh, and this is uh, data coming from the Art Basel UBS report, uh, we can see that collectors allocate uh, a decent portions of their total wealth to uh, art and collect or to art in that case so 10% uh, for more than 64% of the collectors that have been surveyed and even 27% uh, of the collector allocate more than 30% so meaning that when you are wealth manager and when you engage with a collector more, most, more likely, so a huge portion of its wealth will be allocated to art and collectible, which even make more important to include art and collectible assets in the wealth management service offering in terms of opportunities for the wealth management sector. Now, when we talk about art and wealth management services, so we tend to, uh, to explain that this is not only about investment. So first of all, so if you look at wealth management, you have four pillars. The first one is about protecting wealth, obviously, and that's the one on the 
upright. Uh, and then, of course, so we are talking about how to protect the 1.5 trillions. And you have various services that can be offered directly or indirectly to collectors uh, to protect this wealth. It could be art advisory, valuation, insurance, reporting, family governance, passive portfolio management, insurances, art collection management, just to, to, to mention some of them. The second pillar is really about uh, converting wealth to income, so creating an income stream. And this is everything that is linked to art secure lending. This is something that is highly developed in the, in the US, in Europe, in Asia, not so much. And that's so I know that, for example, in London as a financial center, some studies have been done to look at how to maybe support the development of art secure lending market, which is a, a growing market in the US. If we look at the bottom left, so we have all the services around this transfer of wealth. Uh, and there you have all the discussions and services around philanthropy, estate planning, uh, uh, and potentially so also other new services that we will discuss a little bit later. Uh, and finally, so the investment part, so that, and I refer a little bit to Dennis points when you talk about the masterworks or Artex or some of these uh, current initiatives around fractional ownership. But there's another service that I would like to uh, briefly mention, which is social impact investment uh, that also relates to some of the key points about how to connect finance and uh, artists and the art world, because one of the big issues about financing, and I will come to that in, in a second. So. Of course, one of the interesting opportunity uh, uh, of today is all the discussions around tokenizations and, and, and blockchain and, and fractional ownership. So now we have also in Europe a new regulation that it's called MICA that most of you uh, are aware of that start to put a kind of a legal framework on all these, on, on all these discussions. And of course, this is helping to include or to to engage uh, on alternative illiquid assets and to make them more accessible for investment purposes. And of course, art and collectible are part of that. Now, connecting to Keishi uh, points, uh, when we talk uh, about also uh, social impact today, so we focus mainly on uh, green economy, on, on really the environment uh, topics. But what about social impact investment for culture using also fractional ownership and, uh, and, and tokenization? So that's something that could also be a new development part of the art and finance ecosystem where we combine uh, interest of the financial sector, of the art business sector, and of the cultural sector. Because we could imagine that artists could use such kind of approach to maybe finance new projects, for example. But we can also think of, for example, cultural institutions using this kind of approach, maybe to acquire new artworks when basically so the prices is too high. And we will be, we will be moving from a crowdfunding mechanism to a crowd owning mechanism. So that's kind of, this could be also something to, to engage and discuss part of the, of, the, of the discussions today. Now, when we talk about uh, the, I would say, the powers of cities uh, in terms of uh, creating a cultural market. So we have uh, we've been able to produce a ranking in our 2021 report. Uh, you can see that New York is number one, London number two, uh, number two, Paris is number three. But what I think it's important is to understand that the the ecosystem, the, the art business and cultural ecosystem, art institutions included, are extremely important to also promote artists. So part of these discussions also, uh, and that's a point that I would like also to, bro to bring to, to the attention of our audience, is that financial center can be part of the equation, but it's also by uh, understanding the role of the art business sector and of the art institutions to be able to promote artists. So uh, on that point, I uh, just want to mention that if you are interested in uh, this topic, so Deloitte is producing every second year an art and finance report. They are all available online if you have an interest. Also, we produce annually an art and finance conference. The last one took place at the Vatican. Uh, we had more than 750 participants from 56 different countries. You can watch uh, the last conference. Uh, it's on our webpage also. And again, so coming back to Keishi's point, so what we were discussing there was really about 
art and humanity, new art and financing trends. Because again, so we all understand that art is extremely important to, to, for, for our humanity. Uh, you mentioned the COVID period, the, but there's an open question really about financing. And uh, so one of the topic again, so that connects the financial sector, the art business sector, and the cultural sector uh, that could be uh, a point of discussions is all the narrative around blockchain, tokenization, social impact investment, for example. So I leave now uh, the floor back to you, uh, Mike. So thank you very much and uh, looking forward for the, for the discussion. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, that kind of gives a, a good overview, I guess, of where we are in terms of the market um, and opportunities. Um, but I really want to shift the um, discussion now onto uh, what should the financial centre response be, um, whether that's regulatory or whether that is um, you know, generating uh, new instruments, uh, etc. I just want to, uh, Keiichi, as um, a representative of the World Alliance of International Financial Centres here today, um, first of all, you, what are your thoughts on uh, how financial centres might respond to the challenge that we've heard? Yeah, so uh, we just launched this project uh, uh, for uh, uh, World Alliance of Financial Centers. So I cannot uh, speak for other financial centers, but at least from a Tokyo's perspective, um, I can share um, you know, uh, typical challenges, right? So one thing is that when I launched uh, Java Emerging Musician Program at Tokyo Stock Exchange, I tried to get this uh, program. It's, we, 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 we have already done uh, five consecutive years, but uh, at the beginning, uh, we couldn't get endorsed by Tokyo Metropolitan Government. Uh, largely because of the uh, two reasons. Number one, uh, we didn't have any track record, right? And uh, uh, without track record, we don't get supported. Uh, it's the same for any kind of investment in Japan. If you want to get invested by institutional investors, especially pension fund, you have to have uh, five years of track record, right? And uh, but if you can survive for five years, you don't need a seeding, seed money as well, right? So that that's a kind of uh, a challenge number one. Uh, the challenge number two we had to uh, overcome is that uh, because of uh, this event was somewhere between or uh, 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 sit in the domain, domain of the uh, art and culture. And there's a, uh, one silo in Bureau for Art and Culture at Tokyo Metropolitan Government. And also uh, finance. There's a, a economic development, development bureau as well. So those are two different silos and they cannot talk to each other. And only person who can oversee both domains, what has been still the case, Tokyo Governor Koike. So we have to go all the way up to get uh, uh, to the uh, uh, governor, right? Um, so uh, luckily I have a, a, a channel to talk directly to the governor, but if not, there's no way you can go through because there are way too many layers of the hierarchies as well. So uh, yes, so luckily we have been endorsed by Tokyo government, but this is only one you know, uh, example. And uh, if we want to integrate art and finance uh, from a governmental perspective, we have to cut across uh, different uh, uh, silos as well. And, uh, uh, and the one, one last thing is that like, um, uh, um, more, more like an educational issue. Uh, I mentioned the two issues, but the third one is more, more like educational issues. Um, people, uh, one thing we try to uh, achieve is have those musicians explain what they are tr trying to communicate. Uh, they can perform any sort of music as long as they believe in it. But uh, uh, another condition is to explain in an understandable manner. Uh, otherwise, we don't get it, right? Uh, and we, we, they have to engage the audience. Just like uh, you know, uh, startup uh, entrepreneurs need to engage in investors, right? So uh, at the beginning, we they, they are not really good at communicating, and uh, uh, especially they don't know how they don't know how to engage people in finance community, community as well. 
So, uh, of course, uh, oftentimes that the art school students only learn about art. They never learn about business and uh, economics. So uh, we, we have to also adjust the, uh, the way we educate uh, people in art as well. Okay, back to you. Thank you very much. Um, Dennis, you posed the challenge of ownership and, uh, and access. Um, where do you think financial centers have a role in responding to the current market? Yeah, so I think that the kind of a key question that they would have to answer is um, one, is there benefit in being a financial center for art? Yes, no. And if so, what would have to be in place for that to happen? Because today, there actually isn't a financial center for art. There isn't a leading global exchange for shares in art. And that is a market failure. And that market failure is a function of three things, right? It's either the lack of art in, in, the, in the area, right? And there's a really interesting benefit, you know, where you have art and you're an art financial center, more people who have shares in the art want to come see the art, which drives more tourism, you know, it gets the whole flywheel thing going. Um, so either they just don't have the art, but, you know, there's really interesting, uh, in a conversation with Andriano yesterday, he was explaining that there's some very interesting art centers that are not financial centers today. And, and the interesting thing is there's everything to play for today because there isn't a leader in this market. Although eventually the first mover to scale will win. So the first question is, is there benefit in being a financial center for art and, and fractionalized shares in art? I, I would say huge benefits. The second question then is, what do we have to do so we win? Not just to be in it, but to win it. And, and that's three things. That's you got to have the art, you got to have the money, and you have to have an infrastructure, including a regulatory regime that facilitates the development of the market, right? So if you look at the difference between the direction that the U.S. is going, where every piece of art has to be listed as a company, and there's just a lot of compliance costs for that, which means that a lot of art just isn't valuable enough for that to make sense. Versus the direction kind of the UK is going where it might be seen as gambling, right? And so it's a very different regulatory regime, but a much lighter touch, much easier to access, much easier to facilitate regime, kind of like shares and racehorses and those kinds of things. Really thinking about what you want that regulatory regime to look like. And then you really have to ask yourself, what is the role of the stock exchange? Right? And right today, you know, the New York Stock Exchange doesn't really do a whole lot for this. The London Stock Exchange does nothing, right? Uh, and, you know, I don't know what they're waiting for. The, the Madrid Stock Exchange has, has partnered with Artex to try to do something, right? But, you know, the value of the art in and finance in Madrid is tiny. Um, even though they have a lot, they have the art, they don't necessarily have the money. And you, you know what I mean? Their infrastructure is still evolving. So, but right now you would have to say of the exchanges, they are probably the furthest along, right? Which was not intuitive. And so as you think about some of the emerging art centers, specifically in the Middle East, right? In Abu Dhabi um, and other places where they see art and culture tourism is critical um, or in the existing places that just for whatever reason aren't focused on it, if the answer to is there benefit in being the financial center for art is yes, you kind of have to ask yourself, what's why have are they not addressing the market failures that make that so hard? So as an example in Tokyo, where you have a lot of art and you have a lot of money, but you know, the capital gains tax on you, you can't even trade, right? So they have a market failure driven by regulation. Right. And that that so just understanding what those market failures are and what they would have to do to enable the ability to be a financial center, I think, are really important questions to look at. Thank you very much. Um, Adriano, a word from you on where you think the uh, financial system and the financial centers uh, might be able to help 
um, organize the market. I think one of the kind of recurrent point that we can see in our art and finance report is that the art market is still a kind of unregulated and the financial sector, of course, is heavily regulated. And basically, so we have two environments uh, that have difficulties to, to speak to each other or to accept each other. Because, of course, for the financial centers, so dealing with an unregulated item is, of course, very difficult, create a lot of exposure. And so today, of course, one of the, one of the issues that is commonly mentioned is this questions of transparency, trust, uh, traceability in the art world. And of course, uh, for financial players, it's quite challenging to deal with uh, such kind of assets. Huh? And it's also exposed them to a lot of risk. So this is why, so one of the open question is how to increase trust, transparency, and traceability in, uh, in the art world to make it more access, access, ac acceptable as an asset for financial players to deal with. Huh? One of the recent trends that we have seen with KYC AML was going in the right direction. So now the our trade is also subject to that. So that's that's going in the right, right, right direction, but it's not enough. And of course, in our report, we are really questioning. So the different players, the stakeholders, uh, should we see more regulation? Where should it come from? Should it come from uh, government bodies or not? So, and the question is kind of mixed, but maybe some, some something needs to be done on, on that front. So that's one part. Another very, I think, important point is that when we look at, at culture and art in general, is extremely difficult to quantify the, its impact, to measure its economic impact, social impact. Uh, and of course, so if you don't really understand, ex you are not able to measure such kind of impact, it's also very difficult for financial centers to start to get interested by the subject, because of course the financial interest is also there. Interestingly enough, so uh, during our last art and finance conference that took place at the Vatican, so Deloitte Italy presented a new methodology to present, to analyze, uh, the impact, the economic and social impact of cultural projects. And of course, more we understand the economic return and the social return of those projects, those cultural projects, easier it would be to develop investment schemes that have a kind of a social impact investment objective for culture to be developed by financial centers. So something that we are also kind of advocating we have seen in the past uh, a huge developments around green bonds. So could we imagine that at the European level maybe, or the World Bank level, that tomorrow we will also see the issuance of cultural bonds uh, that will focus on support, uh, supporting cultural projects, private and public cultural projects. But again, for that, so we need to be able to measure. So just for the sake of discussions today, there are of course many other topics that could be discussed, but this kind of regulation aspect, I think it's extremely important. And the one of measuring impact is also very important to support, I would say, uh, the, inc the inclusions of art and culture in discussions with financial players. Well, thank you very much. Um, and we do have questions coming in. Um, and indeed, Hugh Purser's uh, question, Adriano, follows up nicely from that, just asking, you know, is there evidence or data to show the impact of modern financial platforms on, first of all, valuations in the art market, or secondly, the frequency or volume of transaction? So, are we are we able to uh, look at you know the impact of uh, you know, different ways and fractional ownership in terms of the volume and the valuation of art? Um, Dennis, you know, I guess I, I I would point to two things, right? So the first is. Um, how successful Masterworks has been in terms of um, the appreciation of the art that they've sold. They haven't sold that many, but the ones that they've sold have sold for a significant premium, right? Um, and that's a function of demand. So the, the best example that I would use is that what fractionalization does is it increases the pool of potential buyers, increasing demand, which then should increase price. So um, if you, you know, there was a uh, uh, business to consumer online marketplace in Switzerland that is a marketing gimmick, bought a Picasso, the master, uh, the, the musketeer, and um, they, uh, without announcing it in advance, listed shares for this piece of art. And in 48 hours, again, with no pre-announcement, 
In 48 hours, they sold more than 40,000 shares to 25,000 people and sold out. And, you know, I think that we have several of these kinds of examples. Now, the upcoming sale by Artex of the Francis Bacon triptych, um, that will be really interesting to see how many shares that goes for, right? I think there's 300,000 of those shares available. Now, that's a, I probably would have picked a different piece to lead with because he's such a high beta Marmite artist, right? Um, but the reality is that these kinds of things already show the demand. And in talking to, you know, the leading auction houses, it used to be, you know, people in their 70s wanted to own the art and build a museum to showcase it. Their kids don't want the museum. In fact, the, the big conversations are, what the hell do we do with this stuff now, right? They'd much rather um, have shares that they can keep if they want, right? And put the stuff in a museum. And then when they're tired of it and they want to do something else, they can sell that, right? And then move to something else. And so I, I just think that a lot of the movements that we're seeing, a lot of the global trends that, that several people have referred to really support the idea that today there is more demand for art than there is actual art that people can afford. And therefore, fractionalization logically should drive price appreciation as you increase the pool of buyers who can access it. Thank you very much. Um, a couple of questions, Kenneth, Toby, and yeah, just sorry, Adriana, yes, please. Yeah, maybe just to complement Danny's point, I think what what is what we notice today, what is very interesting is, well, Dennis talk about the the demand, but what we also see is in terms of offering. Uh, the, I've been looking at this subject for for quite some years now, and the, the recent past, the numbers of of initiatives around this kind of fractional ownership is 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 kind of booming to a certain extent and even uh, for, so because we are here with uh, talking about the financial centers and I think there's also an interesting initiative to report is the one of Deutsche Börse so that also uh, invested into a platform that is called 360x that is that aims to offer this kind of fractional ownership mechanism not only for art but also for music rights for real estate so the trend seems to go in that direction and, and i think one of the important difference that we can see now is that those kind of platforms tend now to be regulated and that's a kind of a very innovative new developments because of course if they are regulated they offer also more security to investors so i just wanted to also touch a little bit on, on that point to cover the, the offering side Thank you very much. We've had a couple of questions around the, the, the place of performing arts um, as opposed to uh, fine art. Um, and just really looking for your comments on how the landscape changes uh, when you look at performing arts as performances are not as tangible. Um, recordings of them maybe, but uh, the performance itself isn't. And um, David Nordell notes that you know, we haven't really focused on the performing arts. Um, because it's more difficult perhaps to invest in a player or a piece of music, but noting that the audience for performance is vast. And there have been lots of investments in performance, especially on Broadway and, and indeed in the West End here. Um, and at the same time, performing arts need major investments in education. So how do we, I think there's a, a range of questions here, how do we look at performing arts in relation to you know, investment in the market? And how do we make the connection to get money flowing back into uh, education and the art institutions that then Dennis mentioned earlier. Dennis, you had your hand up first. Yeah, so I think that, you know, this gets to the fact that the economic model around performing arts is kind of broken, right? Um, and, and the role of the players in the ecosystem needs to change. And so, you know, what we do see is there is a very vibrant market today in buying and selling music rights, right? And so you can imagine a world in which, you know, if, if we just go to um, the, the Music Academy in Jerusalem, a, a performance or a, you know, a series of performances, let's say, imagine that you create an envelope where there are rights to that performance, audio rights, visual rights, replay rights, those kinds of things, where you can not only buy a ticket, but you could also buy the rights 
for the intellectual property and IP, should that ever be used in the future? And imagine a world in which the Academy of Music in Jerusalem is now, their part of their mission is not only to um, enable and foster and catalyze music, but it's also part of its mission is to commercialize that music, to get it sold into commercials, to get clips put onto different platforms, to maximize the revenue stream which then maximizes the return to the people who buy the shares in that asset, right? Which then catalyzes the whole market, right? It allows you to pay artists. It allows you to pay composers, it allow, which today these things pay nothing. I mean, you know, the worst paid job in the world with the least security is to be a music teacher, right? These are zero hours contracts. There are, right? And so, you know, I, I think that I, I really like the idea of, what does this mean for performing arts, not just visual art assets? And that really has to do with how we commercialize the IP and, and the, the, the rights to those performances in a way that benefits the institutions like the you know, Music Academy in Jerusalem and the artists and the creators and the public. Thank you. Okay. So, so uh, yeah, that, that's the yeah, uh, uh, quite, uh, uh, I mean, I agree everything uh, Dennis mentioned, but uh, performing art business itself is very difficult, right? Uh, it, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, you cannot monetize, right? In, in a way, it's similar to sports. Um, back in 2019, uh, Silver Lake, you know, uh, uh, alternative investment managers acquired 10% of uh, Manchester City for $500 million. Everyone is so surprised, right? Because uh, it's a serious investor. Silver Lake is a serious investor. It's not just, a, you know, rich people's hobby, having a sports team. And to achieve, in order to achieve the uh, return. And recently, they even like uh, increased the stake to 18%. Um, so sports can be uh, 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 kind of a uh, ma mainstream alternative investment. Uh, back in 1990s, um, I was a, 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 before I was a McKinsey partner, I was a Deloitte partner. Uh, uh, in 1990, I still worked for Deloitte. And I was surprised um, when Rod Stewart divorced and then uh, securitized his uh, 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 income, future income, in order to achieve his divorce to his uh, ex-wife, right? So Ross Stewart is, uh, you know, rock star, and uh, uh, he was anticipated to be able to generate huge amount of, uh, you know, future, you know, revenue as well. Um, so uh, there must be a way to make uh, performing arts into a more like a, a, a investable uh, asset class as well. The, uh, um, the, on the other hand, when it comes to sports, sumo, sumo wrestling was one of our clients. And even though sumo was considered a, as a mainstream sport, sorry, I'm just digressing from a performing art, but the entire revenue, of small business is only $80 million, $80 million by annum. The reason why is it's very different, different from uh, golfing and uh, 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 football. You know, uh, people watch football and they want to practice. People watch tennis and then you wanna try, right? But no matter how much you like sumo, you, you don't wanna get naked and you don't wanna get fat. So that the market, cannot be, cannot grow. There are only two types of people, sumo wrestler or audience. There, and very few, few uh, amateur weekend uh, sumo wrestlers. And there's no female sumo wrestler either. So it's almost impossible to grow the market for sumo, unlike golfing and tennis. Now, uh, the issue is jazz music um, uh, compared to uh, 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 classic. Because for classic, you have teachers. And then there are scripts, uh, uh, notes 
to follow. For Java, you have to improvise. And uh, uh, oftentimes, it's very difficult to comprehend as well. So uh, you have to make a kind of a you know super professional to uh, uh, you know uh, you know intermediate professionals to uh, you know semi semi professional hierarchy. Otherwise, you cannot grow the market. But the, the most important thing is um, before arguing about the uh, uh, performing out whether it's an investable asset class or not, you have to educate people how to uh, you know uh, put together design the business model even for art. Uh, for even you know performing out as well. Adriano. Just to briefly compliment on, on Dennis and Keishi uh, contributions. So I think what is interesting is that all the new technologies can really help to develop new, I would say revenue models also, but also financing models. Something that we have not really kind of tested yet, but is uh, why not creating DAOs, so decentralized autonomous organizations to finance uh, uh, cultural projects, performing projects where members, the community that is behind can vote on which project to finance. So that's one thing. Now also we have seen during COVID times so certain numbers of performing art shows uh, being broadcast uh, through internet. And when you look at the audience, so it goes by millions and that's also give new source of income. So I think what is interesting nowadays is to see how technology can really help to develop new creative financing or revenue models. But we are just at the beginning of it. Thank you. Uh, we've got a couple more questions to get through. Um, Benjamin Schlossman has asked how the blockchain, how can blockchain assist in the movement of fractional art investments from warehouses or freeports uh, into the hands of museums and collection managers? Uh, Dennis, this is probably uh, for you. Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of, um, you know, I, I helped start McKinsey's internet practice in Palo Alto in 1996. Um, and, you know, I think that this is yet another technology that is a functional technology that was mistaken as a business model, right? I mean, th there's great things about the blockchain and there's great things about, you know, tokenization in terms of traceability, in terms of authentication, in terms of, but they're not business models, right? So they, they really do nothing <laughs> to take it out of the Geneva Freeport right, and get it into a museum. And you could get into a museum using a unit share trust. You don't need this complicated tech whiz bang kind of thing. And in fact, you know, I mean, if you just look at what's happening with Beyonce uh, or Binance today, right, where the SEC is really cracked down on them and, and uh, you know, there's just a lot of, um, uh, well, fraud <laughs> in that part of the market. You know, what we find is the people with art, um, or increasingly with old school money, want nothing to do with that, which is why, you know, at, at Icon Exchange, they, they, they're not use, pushing that at all, right? They, they are very old school. Um, and, uh, you know, it really does, um, it, it, I, I think, become a bit of a distraction. Um, you know, the Lapkovitz family uh, hosts for the last few years an NFT conference at the Palace of Prague Castle, which has been so interesting, right? And if, as you look at the development of that market and frankly, the quality of what's available on that market, right? It, 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 it really shows the danger of when you mistake a functional technology as a business model. And the business model on, on art and fractionalizing art doesn't need necessarily that technology today to be functioning. Thank you very much, Adriano. Just to add, I would say, as of course, just to come back to my, one of my previous points, as the art world is uh, unregulated, in order to satisfy some risk management uh, aspect for, for financial institutions, they will impose to have assets in facilities such as reports, uh, because of course they don't want to see them moving around the world. So, uh, so that's that's part of uh, the, the security that needs to be offered to uh, to investors also. Yeah, whatever the, the purpose, social or or. Or, or pure investment. Now, of course, if you work with the museums, it's a bit different. But uh, so usually, usually, so all the financial institutions 
whatever the product, uh, RCQ lending, fractional ownership via blockchain or classic uh, ownership will impose uh, to store uh, artworks in free ports or similar type of facilities. Well, thank you very much. Um, just just a, a final question. Uh, Jochen Biedemann uh, is asking whether the market already has sufficient transparency uh, for broader investment groups to get involved, or do we need more companies and platforms that provide investors with relevant information? So you know, is there an intermediary role um, that's being fulfilled? I don't know who would like to take that one. Adriano, perhaps maybe you would like to start on that one? If you want, so I think we are still at the beginning of it. So I won't say that uh, we have enough transparency at all. So, uh, so one of the important question, again, so if we talk about fractional ownership is one of the key elements is liquidity and how do you provide liquidity? And so that's a very important element in order to support such kind of developments. So, how this liquidity is going to be provided, how this is going to be proven. So that needs to be still shown to my, uh, to my, uh, to my understanding. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it really depends on the kind of art you're talking about. I mean, look, in all of these new emerging markets, it's a wild west with a ton of fraud, which is why I think, again, museums need to play such an important role because, you know, if it's hanging in the National Gallery of the Tate or the MoMA, or LACMA, or you know, the Royal Academy. You, you know, you can trust that provenance, right? They understand where it's coming from, right? I mean, you, it's not a hundred percent, right? But it's ninety-nine percent, as opposed to look, I got a Banksy, you know, which, by the way, you, you know, pest control won't certify. So, uh, you know, I think that that's a real risk um, uh, there. And so, I really, I actually think that you really need to early on uh, go to safety and safety is in the institutions that have great provenance. Um, and, and then I think that, and from provenance um, and from, as Adriano was saying, uh, security, that's why I think the institutions again play such an important role. And I just think it'd be, I, my heart breaks every time I think about the 200 billion in art that's in the Geneva Freeport that no one will ever see, right? Um, I, I just think that's a, a crime against humanity because it's it's humanity's patrimony. Um, you know, the role of, of museums need to change to be the safe houses, to be the commercialization engine, to be the authentication engine to really help facilitate this market. And when they do that, then they're going to free themselves from the shackles that they have today of either government support, and therefore they have to tow a government line, or major donor support, right? Which, you know, look at the Sacklers, look at the oligarchs, look at all the problems that that caused, right? They're, you know, uh, they, they're really looking for a new economic model. And I really think being the anchor tenant in this ecosystem is something that is a win-win with integrity for all parties, um, but they have yet to move in that direction. Well, so, so one, yeah, one last comment. Um, so let me share my experience. I occasionally buy some artworks, you know, uh, which I like, right? Not with the intention to make money or generate return out of it. I simply like it. And, and I try to reach out to the uh, artist to, you know, uh, to share my feedback, right? I like this because of ABC. Um, but um, the issue is that uh, there's a, you know, artists often say, oh, I'm not supposed to talk to you. We have to go through art dealers. So uh, uh, at least in Japan, we have very strong uh, art dealer uh, presence between uh, art lovers and artists, right? That's one of the reasons why art community and investor communities are not integrated, because we are not allowed to talk to each other. And uh, art, artists are supposed to focus on art and then every business development promotion should be done by art dealers. So this uh, has nothing to do with technology. We, we need to disintermediate uh, this uh, intermediator as well. Now, uh, of course, we have a liquidity issue, but if we live next to the artist and we believe in some artists, that's, that's enough, right? That's how we you know, better understand the value of the art and also passion and uh, uh, whatever they believe in. So um, 
So that, that's why, in order for us to make the market more transparent, we have to integrate artists and financial communities uh, in finance, financial centers. So that's, uh, uh, you know, we don't have to have sophisticated blockchain technologies or anything like that to achieve that. Okay. Well, um, I'm afraid we, 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 we are out of time. Uh, we've reached um, the, the hour point. Um, so if, for, for me to give a few thank yous, first of all, um, I mentioned our sponsors earlier, but um, you know, thank you very much to our sponsors for allowing us to host uh, these events. Um, we've still got comments and questions coming into the chat. So uh, those of you who, who follow this um, you know, can, can continue the, the conversation. Um, but really, um, a big thank you uh, to Keiji, Dennis and Adriano for sharing their thoughts, their experience uh, today. Um, and very good luck to Keiji and the World Alliance of International Financial Centres for the project you're um, taking forward on uh, how financial centres uh, will continue to uh, develop and support uh, the market in art. Um, just as a, um, to, to, to keep your eye on what's coming up on this Thursday, we have a session on multi-cloud security and financial services. Uh, infrastructure um, and disaster management uh, on Monday um, and on the 20th of June uh, a session on transforming rather than optimizing uh, using a history-based theory of change uh, to radically invent investment philosophy and practice so lots of um, things coming up do keep an eye on the website for uh, future uh, future events um, so thank you for you the audience for coming along today and for your engagement Thank you very much to our speakers. Um, normally, I'd be able to open um, the discussion for a round of applause. Uh, you get a very small one from me instead. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much, everyone.